Hey everyone, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. This is episode one of Dracula by Bram Stoker, and I will be covering chapters one through 11 and going over context and major characters. And in the next episode at the very end is when I'll go over themes. I was really excited to read this book. I had never read it before this, and I love vampires, so I kind of had high expectations. It is very old, obviously. It was published in 1897, so I can't say that it was one of my favorite books. It was fun to read, though, and it was fun to find out some of the origins of vampires. As I was reading, I googled a bunch of stuff. Okay, context and overview. So Bram Stoker was born on November 8, 1847, near Dublin, Ireland. He was raised in a religious family, studied at Trinity College, and early in his career he was a theater critic and wrote stories on the side. Now, despite Dracula taking place in parts of Eastern Europe like Romania, Bram Stoker never actually visited there. He did, however, visit Whitby, which is one of the locations in the novel, and it's where a lot of the novel takes place. Interestingly enough, Bram Stoker strongly believed in progress and science over superstition, so it's interesting that he wrote a book about vampires in a very superstitious world. Dracula itself tells the story of the now infamous Count Dracula and his move from Transylvania to England to feed on new blood and try to create more vampires. But he finds himself battling with a group of people led by Abraham Van Helsing, who we know as the most famous vampire hunter. Okay, so one of my favorite facts about Dracula that I found is that some of the aspects around the character Count Dracula are believed to be based on the 15th century prince named Vlad the Impaler, or Vlad Dracula. He was the prince of what's now called Romania, and he was nicknamed Vlad the Impaler because he was famous for impaling his victims and enemies on stakes in the ground. Like, it was a two-sided stake. He'd put one side in the ground, and on the top of it, sticking straight out of the ground, would be a body hanging off of the stake. Anyway, so that was his nickname, Vlad the Impaler. But he was also referred to as Vlad Dracula because his father was Vlad Dracul, and Dracul means dragon, so Dracula means son of dragon, son of Dracul. And in modern Romania, Dracul means the devil. So my very favorite fact that I learned researching about Dracula is this. So this is a true story. In 1892 in Rhode Island, a woman named Mercy Brown died of tuberculosis. So at the time, not a lot was known about tuberculosis. They called it consumption and they didn't know the cause or how to stop it. So before Mercy Brown died, her mother and sister died also of tuberculosis. Then Mercy Brown gets it and dies, and then after her, her brother got it. So when her brother gets sick, friends and neighbors of the family in the neighborhood believed that one of the family members, one of the women, must have been killing the family from the other side, from beyond the grave. They believed one of them was a vampire, though they never used that name. So these people in the town convinced the father of this family to allow them to dig up the bodies of his wife and two daughters and see if they were properly decomposed and make sure none of them were undead, killing people from the other side. They dug up the mom and the sister first. They were found to be properly decomposed. But Mercy was buried in the winter in an above-ground crypt. So she was essentially frozen. 
So her body was obviously not decomposed, and she still had blood in her heart. So they took this to mean that she was undead and a vampire and killing her brother from the other side. So they decided it was appropriate to cut her heart out, cut her liver out, burn them, mix the ashes, and put them into a tonic, and then they made her brother drink it because they believed that this would cure him. It obviously did not. He died of tuberculosis two months later. But I tell you this story because it was obviously in the newspapers. And don't forget, this was the late 1800s. If we're comparing superstitious beliefs to like the Salem witch trials, that was the late 1600s. So this is not that long ago, 1892. They believed that a vampire was killing her family from the other side. So this was obviously in the newspapers. And among Bram Stoker's things they found after he died, there was a cutout of the article about Mercy Brown. And it's widely believed by scholars that Bram Stoker based his character Lucy Westenra on Mercy Brown. And I'll tell you more about Lucy later. But basically, he based his character on Mercy Brown. And I just think that that's so cool. Okay, moving on to major characters. So obviously Count Dracula is a major character. He is a Transylvanian nobleman. He is tall and thin. He has a mustache and red lips and sharp teeth, and he has the ability to look younger. So at different points in the novel, he has white hair and black hair, depending on how many people he's fed on at the time. He gets younger the more he feeds. So he has obviously lived a very long time, hundreds of years. And in the beginning of the novel, he lives in Romania and he is in the process of purchasing an old church in London because he wants to move there and, you know, increase his reach when it comes to vampires and humans. The second character is Jonathan Harker. So he works as a solicitor and he is sent to Dracula's home in Romania to sell him the estate in London. He becomes a prisoner in Dracula's castle and he tries to escape, and Mina, who the next character is, is his fiance. So the next character is Wilhelmina Harker. They call her Mina. She is a school teacher. She is Jonathan's fiance, and through the course of the novel becomes his wife. She is the best friend of Lucy. They've been friends since childhood, and she is part of the group that helps take down Count Dracula. The next character is Lucy Westenra. This is the girl I told you is based off of Mercy Brown. So she's 19. Her best friend is Mina, and she's very beautiful and sought after. And in the course of the novel, three different men propose to her. Their names are Arthur Holmhood, Quincy Morris, and Dr. John Seward. She says yes to Arthur Holmwood and becomes his fiance. And she falls victim to Dracula and becomes a vampire. Sorry for that spoiler. But she does become a vampire and the vampire hunters have to figure out how to rid her of this curse. So three other members of this vampire hunting squad are the three men who propose to Lucy. So like I said, the first one is Arthur Holmwood. He's the one she says yes to. He's a wealthy aristocrat. His father dies and so he becomes Lord Godalming. And he's Lucy's fiance, like I said. I'm not saying Lucy's a gold digger, but he's the only one that's rich. Okay, the second one is Quincy Morris. He is an American from Texas. He proposes to Lucy and she says no, but he's very loyal. He's described as very strong and very kind and just a very good person. The next one is Dr. John Seward. 
So he is older, is director of an insane asylum. Lucy says no to his proposal as well. He struggles with loneliness and he studied with Professor Van Helsing. So he's the connection to Van Helsing. When everything starts to go wrong, he contacts Van Helsing and has him come help them. Okay, the next character is Abraham Van Helsing. Obviously, we've all heard about him. He's an infamous vampire hunter. He's a professor and a doctor and a lawyer. He's from Amsterdam. And when things start going wrong and getting strange, Dr. Seward contacts Van Helsing because he knows that he's good at figuring this stuff out. He actually doesn't know that he's figured out what vampires are and that he's a vampire hunter, but he knows that he's really smart and can help them. So he's the one who figures out that Lucy is in the process of becoming a vampire and helps lead this squad of vampire hunters. So he's very noble, very intelligent, has a lot of integrity, and he's just like a very good person. And the last character, his name is Renfield. That's all he's referred to in the novel. And he is a patient in Dr. Seward's insane asylum. He's very strange and very chaotic. He eats flies and spiders. He eats birds at one point. And we come to find out that he is under the influence of Dracula as well. So just to clarify, the members of this vampire hunting squad are Abraham Van Helsing, Jonathan and Mina Harker, Arthur Holmwood, Quincy Morris, and Dr. Seward. These are the six people who become this vampire hunting squad trying to save Lucy, trying to get rid of Count Dracula. Okay, so the themes I'm just going to mention briefly, and then at the very end of the podcast, I will go in depth on them. So the themes to look out for are femininity, pretty much like purity and male devotion versus sexuality and freedom. He kind of gets into what it's like to be a woman at this time and how it's like frowned upon to be seen as sexual and that women are valued by how pure they are and how devoted they are to men. The second theme is obviously good versus evil. That's an easy one. There's a theme of Christianity, and there's a theme of prejudice against the other, like anything that's different from your own self. Okay, before I get into chapter summaries, I would just like to point out that this novel is set up as an epistolary novel, which means that it's a compilation of things like journal entries, memos, telegrams, newspaper articles, things like that. And the reason that Bram Stoker did it that way is because during the novel, the characters make it a point to keep detailed journal entries of what happens, and they have Mina compile it all together in chronological order so that they have proof of their story and what happened so that maybe people will believe them that vampires were real. Chapter 1. Okay, so the first few chapters are from Jonathan Harker's journal. We open on May 3rd in Eastern Hungary, Jonathan is writing in his journal and he tells us that he's traveling from London to Transylvania. So during the night on the train, they stop in Klausenburg, which is the capital of Transylvania. Jonathan writes about how he is a little bit nervous to meet Count Dracula. This is the first job he's been sent on on his own to solicit and to help him buy an estate in London. And so he learned as much as he could about Transylvania in order to deal better with the nobleman Count Dracula. So he finds out that there's four nationalities in Transylvania. 
and I'm going to butcher these words, but the Saxons in the south, the Wallachs, who are descendants of the Dacians, and the Magyars in the west, and the Zakils in the east and north. I have no idea if I said those right. Anyway, he finds out everything he can about Transylvania, and as he does, he finds out that they are very superstitious there. On page six, it says, I read that every known superstition in the world is gathered into the horseshoe of the Carpathians as if it were the center of some sort of imaginative whirlpool. If so, my stay may be very interesting. So he finds out that they are very superstitious in Transylvania, and during his night in Klausenburg, he has some weird dreams. He rushes through breakfast to make his train, and as they pass through the towns going to Transylvania, Jonathan observes the people. He finds that most of them are peasants. He sees that the Slovaks are the oddest people to him. He says that they're more barbarian than the rest. They wear big cowboy hats and like dirty white pants and white linen shirts, enormous heavy leather belts. Anyway, so he just observes the people around him and he arrives in a place called Bistritz around nightfall. And Count Dracula, in a letter, had advised him to stay at the Golden Crone Hotel. It's super old-fashioned, and there's two elderly people who are the hosts, and they give him another letter from Count Dracula confirming their plans to meet tomorrow. So May 4th, he starts a new journal entry. He says that the elderly hosts pretended as if they didn't understand Jonathan when he asked questions about Count Dracula, and when he does, they cross themselves. The elderly woman is upset and keeps asking Jonathan if he must go if like do you have to go to count dracula because it's dangerous she explains that may 4th which is that day is saint george's day and on page nine she says do you not know that tonight when the clock strikes midnight all the evil things in the world will have full sway so this is one of their superstitions the elderly woman gets on her knees begs him to stay at least another day And when he says he can't, she gives him a crucifix to protect him. So it's now May 5th. This is a new journal entry. And Jonathan retells his story of his trip to the Count's castle. He's now in the castle and he tells us about his journey to get there. So when he tried to leave the hotel, a group gathered around together, made crosses at him. They were doing what they call a charm or a guard against the evil eye. Jonathan found this very unpleasant as he was going to meet a strange man that everyone seemed to be afraid of, and he's in an unknown place, but he gets in the coach and they drive away. And he tries to enjoy the beauty around him, but he notices everywhere that there are crosses and that everyone they drove past cross themselves. And as they're driving, the other passengers give Jonathan gifts that are supposed to help him on St. George's Day. And finally, they arrive at the place where Jonathan is supposed to meet someone from Count Dracula's castle who is going to take him the rest of the way in a carriage. The carriage wasn't there, but the driver waited a little while. Then he tried to convince Jonathan to come with him to the next city, and then he'll bring him back tomorrow and try again. But then finally, the driver from Count Dracula's castle shows up. So Jonathan gets in the carriage and he notices the driver when he sees him in the light. On page 15, it says he has a hard looking mouth with very red lips, sharp looking teeth as white as ivory. Jonathan isn't afraid, but he says he feels strange. It's not like fear. It's just like he has a weird feeling. And he checked the time 
and noticed that it was almost midnight, which made him paranoid because remember what they said about midnight. He hears dogs howling and then wolves start howling, which frightened the horses. And this is when Jonathan starts getting scared. He says it started snowing. So he saw in the distance a blue flame and the driver stopped the carriage when he saw the flame and like jumped out and walked into the darkness towards the flame and then came back and then left again towards the blue flame. Jonathan felt like he was having a nightmare because it was repeated several times where the driver would leave towards the blue flame and then he would come back and they would drive and then he would go towards the blue flame. So it was just this weird cycle. And at one point, the driver leaves for an extended period of time and the horses start getting scared. And then the moon comes out from behind a cloud and Jonathan notices that they're surrounded by a ring of wolves. And so he calls to the driver to come back and the driver comes back, tell like gets the wolves to fall back somehow and gets in the carriage. They drive off and eventually reach the castle. Okay, chapter two. So this is May 5th continued. Jonathan writes about the driver's strength, how he shook his hand and it almost crushed his and he's like starting to have doubts about the trip. And this is when we find out that Jonathan is a solicitor and he's there to help Dracula purchase an estate in London. And before he left London to come here, he found out that he had passed his solicitor's exam. So he now is technically a full-blown solicitor, but he works for a man named Mr. Hawkins. So when he gets to the castle, he knocks on the door and an old tall man answers the door. He has a long white mustache. He's dressed in all black. He speaks excellent English with a Romanian accent, and he invites Jonathan inside, but won't take his hand until he walks into the house. On page 22, Jonathan says, his hand grasped mine with a strength which made me wince, an effect which was not lessened by the fact that it seemed as cold as ice. So obviously this old man is Count Dracula. He grabs Jonathan's bags and they go to the dining hall and there's supper prepared for him, but he takes him to his room first. So basically his room is like a dining hall that leads to a hallway that leads to his bedroom. There's a window in his bedroom and a warm fire. And so they put his bags down and then go and eat. But Dracula excuses himself from eating, saying he already ate earlier. And Jonathan gives Dracula a letter from his boss just about the state in London that he's going to purchase. And then Jonathan describes Dracula. This is like an in-depth description of what Dracula looks like. So he says he has a strong face, a thin nose, abnormally arched nostrils, lofty domed forehead, hair growth scantily around temples but profusely everywhere else, impressive eyebrows, a cruel looking mouth, sharp white teeth, pale pointed ears, and a broad chin. Put that all together and you get Count Dracula. So Jonathan goes to bed after he eats. He's sort of suspicious about the situation he's in, but he goes to sleep. So the next day, this is the May 7th journal entry. Jonathan says he slept until late that morning, afternoon, I don't know, discovered that Dracula was gone and there was breakfast left out for him, but it was cold. And he kind of explores a little bit, sees that the castle has very rich furnishings, and it seems like a well-kept castle, but he can't find any servants, and that is strange to him. He also notices there's no mirrors anywhere. He finds a library that is stocked with plenty of novels, English novels, magazines, newspapers for him to read, 
And later that evening, Dracula joins him. He talks about his desires to go to London and how he doesn't want to seem like a foreigner in London. He really wants to get it so that his accent isn't noticeable and so people think that he's from there. And so he asks if Jonathan will stay a while and help him with his intonation, like with his accent and like the rise and fall of how his voice should sound if he was from London. Jonathan agrees but it seems like it's he's kind of hesitant he's still a little bit suspicious dracula tells him that he is invited to go anywhere in the castle except for the doors that are locked and explains that they have traditions in romania that are different than in london and jonathan starts asking questions so he asks why the driver went to the blue flame Dracula says that legend has it that the blue flames show where treasure is concealed, so he must have been trying to find treasure. Dracula talks a little bit about London, and Jonathan is impressed by how much he knows. And Dracula is like, I want to know everything there is to know since I'll be completely alone there. Jonathan is like, don't worry, we'll figure it out and we'll get you this old estate. It's actually an old church in a place called Perfleet. Jonathan explores the library some more before supper, and again, Dracula sits with him while he eats, but declines having any food himself. And as Jonathan eats, they end up talking late into the night, almost to dawn. Okay, so May 8th journal entry. Jonathan is starting to notice more strangeness, and he's even more suspicious of his situation, and he wants to leave. On page 33, he writes, I fear that I am the only living soul within the place. He had a hard time sleeping the night before. He gets up in the morning and has like a small mirror in his bag to shave. And so he's shaving when Dracula comes into the room to greet him, to say good morning. And Jonathan notices it's like it like startles Jonathan because he didn't see Dracula in the reflection of the mirror. So he had no warning that he was there. And he's so startled that he cuts his face and starts bleeding. And it says on page 34, When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demonic fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away, and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. So the Count takes Jonathan's shaving mirror and throws it out the window and is kind of just like writes it off. It's a really weird situation, and Jonathan is afraid, so he doesn't ask questions, and he goes to eat breakfast alone, and then he explores the castle only to find all of the doors are locked. And on page 35, he says, The castle is a versatile prison, and I am a prisoner. Chapter 3. So, Jonathan starts searching for a way out of the castle, and he's come to the conclusion that he needs to keep quiet about feeling like he's a prisoner and not tell Dracula anything. He thinks that maybe his brain is deceiving him, or that, worst case scenario, he's going to need his wits to get out of this. And Jonathan catches, at one point, catches Dracula making his bed and setting the table, which confirms to him what he thought, that there were no servants in the castle. It's just him and Dracula. And he realizes that the Count was also the driver that brought him to the castle. And this is when he begins to really panic. And he thinks about all of the gifts that the peasants gave him, how they gave him garlic and mountain ash and wild rose and a crucifix, and wonders if that's supposed to, like, ward off something. So that night, Jonathan asked Dracula about the Transylvanian history, and Dracula recounted it as if he had lived through it himself, which of course he did. And he recounts all the history that they survived, and they again stay up until dawn, and then they go to bed. 
May 12th journal entry, Dracula inquires about getting more solicitors for possibly more properties, and they go over some logistics. And after that, Dracula asks if Jonathan has written letters to anybody. And then he tells Jonathan to write letters to his loved ones and let them know that he will be staying for a month. Jonathan obviously doesn't want to stay, but on 42, he says, while Count Dracula was speaking, there was that in his eyes and in his bearing, which made me remember that I was a prisoner. So he knows he has no choice. Dracula hands him some paper and envelopes and warns him to be careful about what he writes. Dracula writes his own letters and then takes Jonathan's letters and says he's going to mail them. And he warns Jonathan not to sleep in any other part of the castle than his room. A journal entry titled Later, Jonathan is starting to become jumpy at everything. He at one point was exploring the castle, went into a room that had a window that overlooked the south of the castle, and he saw Dracula through the window. So he saw him crawl out of the window. On page 44, it says, I saw the whole man slowly emerge from the window and begin to crawl down the castle wall over that dreadful abyss, face down with his cloak spreading out around him like great wings. Obviously, this freaks him out. He's like, I don't even understand what Count Dracula is. He's obviously not human, and he thinks he's going crazy. So journal entry, May 15th, Jonathan witnesses Dracula doing this thing on more than one occasion, like scaling the wall, and Jonathan starts testing different doors around the castle, trying to find one that's open that would give him a clue as to what's going on. He stops in a room one night to write in his journal. So that was on May 15th, and the next journal entry is May 16th. Jonathan at this point, really thinks he's losing his mind. So he says after he went into that room to write in his journal, he fell asleep. And remember, he's not supposed to fall asleep in any other room. He thought he was asleep at least, but he had a very wild experience. So in his sleep, he like wakes up. He sees there's three young women sitting across from him. One of the girls came towards Jonathan, bent over him, and pressed her teeth to his neck. And at that point, the count came in and is super angry, grabs her off of him, throws her, and then he's like, he says to the women, Jonathan is mine. So the women grab their bag and disappear, and Jonathan said it seemed like the bag had a child in it, and he faints, and the next thing he knows, he wakes up in his own bed. Chapter 4. So Jonathan wakes up in his own bed in the castle, and he realizes that those women in the room we're trying to suck his blood. He writes a new journal entry May 18th and says that that day he'd gone looking for the room again to confirm that it wasn't a dream, but the door was forcibly shut so powerfully that the wood had splintered. May 19th, Dracula comes into Jonathan's room and asks him to write three letters. In the first letter, he says he needs to tell his loved one that he's almost done. In the second letter, he needs to say that he's leaving for home in a couple of days. And then the last letter, he's supposed to write that he left the castle and has arrived in Bistritz. This is basically confirmation to Jonathan that his life is in danger and that he is going to die. Because why else would Dracula have him write three letters and then give them to Dracula for him to send? So he's going to send these, like he had him date them a few days apart as if he's writing letters when really he thinks the plan is for Jonathan to be killed and he's covering his tracks. So later he sees some gypsies out the window 
of his room and he sees this as his opportunity to get a letter to his fiance and his boss in order to try to escape. He writes a letter to his fiance Mina and to his boss. So he doesn't give a lot of details in his letter to Mr. Hawkins, but he does give a lot of details in the letter to Mina. And he throws the letters out the window down to the gypsies and asks them to send him for him. But what he doesn't know is that the gypsies are in cahoots with Dracula, obviously. So the count comes in his room later and he has both letters that the gypsies gave to him. He burns the letter to Mina, but he decides to send the letter to Mr. Hawkins. He locks Jonathan in his room, and Jonathan goes to sleep. He sleeps without dreaming, and he says on 54, despair has its own calms. Okay, May 31st, Jonathan wakes up to find all of the paper in his room gone, even his tickets, and also the suit that he traveled to Transylvania in is also gone. June 17th, so it's been about two weeks of Jonathan locked in his room. So Jonathan hears horses outside and sees a bunch of people coming up the drive. And he tries to leave to join them, but his door is locked from the outside so he can't get out. One of the gypsies points at him through the window and says something, and they all laugh. June 24th, the gypsies are now in the castle doing some kind of work. And Jonathan sneaks away. His room is not locked today, and he sneaks away to the room with the window. And he sees Dracula crawling out of the window wearing the suit that he was missing, his own travel suit, and carrying the bag that he saw the women with when he thought that there was a child in the bag. And Jonathan is like, okay, the Count is setting me up. He stays in the room for a while and he starts seeing like dust particles dancing in the moonlight. And then those dust particles turn into those three vampire women. And so he runs away into his room. Later, he hears a woman crying outside of his window. She's yelling at the castle, like, give me my child back. She falls to the floor. She's hysterical. And the count is watching and calls to the wolves, and the wolves kill the woman. And on page 57, Jonathan says, I could not pity her, for I knew what had become of her child, and she was better dead. Okay, June 25th, this is the morning. Jonathan knows that one of his letters is sent out today. This was the first date of the first letter that the Count had him write. So he needs to act quickly. And he takes notice that the Count is never around during the day, so he decides to try to crawl out of the window like Dracula does and go into Dracula's room. So later that day, he writes in his journal again and tells us that he crawled outside of the window, made it to Dracula's room, but it was empty. He did find a huge pile of gold and then a few different doors. So he went through another door into another room. It led to a stone passageway and he finds an old run-down chapel filled with wooden boxes. He starts looking around in the boxes, and he finds Count Dracula lying in one of the boxes, a coffin. The Count is asleep, and he carefully searches him for keys, doesn't find anything, and he gets scared and flees and runs back to his room. June 29th, so today is the date of the last letter, and the Count leaves the castle again in Jonathan's suit presumably to send the last letter. So Jonathan goes to the library. He reads until he falls asleep. Dracula comes in and tells him that Jonathan must leave tomorrow for England and they'll probably never cross paths again. And Jonathan is like, if I stay, I'm going to die. He tries to convince the Count to let him leave that night. And the Count is like, okay, I'm not holding you against your will. You can leave tonight. So he takes him downstairs, opens the front door, but the wolves are outside waiting. So Jonathan realizes that his efforts to escape that night are in vain, 
So Jonathan agrees to stay the night. And he says on page 62, The last I saw of Count Dracula was his kissing his hand to me with a red light of triumph in his eyes and with a smile that Judas and Hell might be proud of. So Jonathan hears Dracula outside of his door, or he thinks he hears Dracula outside of his door, and throws his door open, but he sees the three women, goes back in his room, prays to God, and on June 30th that morning, he writes, when he woke up, he threw himself on his knees because he says on page 63, I determined that if death came, he should find me ready. Jonathan goes downstairs, tries to leave through the front door, but it's locked, and he plans to go to Dracula's room later to find a key, ready to risk death if need be. And he goes to the Count's wooden box and sees that Dracula has grown younger somehow. His hair is no longer white. It's like a dark iron gray. His cheeks are fuller. His lips are redder and trickled with fresh blood on the corners. And it says on 64, it seemed as if the whole awful creature were simply gorged with blood. He lay like a filthy leech, exhausted with his repletion. So as Jonathan searches for the key, he realizes that he's about to unleash this monster on London because the sale has gone through, the estate has been purchased, and he has a desire to kill Dracula. So he picks up a shovel and goes to, you know, hit Dracula in the head with it. But as he does, Dracula's head turns to look at him and he fumbles and only like slices his forehead a little bit. And then he hears the gypsies return. He's determined to make his escape this way, so he, like, hides in a corner. They come in and nail Dracula's box shut, and then they leave. And he's still stuck a prisoner in this house, but he plans to try to escape using the wall outside. Okay, so chapter five, we get a new perspective. We don't hear from Jonathan for a while, or maybe ever. I don't want to give you any spoilers. So this chapter opens, and it's Mina Murray writing a letter to Lucy Westenra. So Mina is Jonathan's fiance, and her friend is Lucy Westenra. So it begins with the letters between the two of them, dated May 9th. Okay, so Mina is an assistant school mistress. She has been practicing shorthand and typewriting for her fiance, Jonathan, and they are planning to get married. She tells Lucy in her letter that she got a letter from Jonathan saying that he'll be home in a week. Lucy responds to Mina's letter. She talks about a young man who she thinks would go well with Mina if she wasn't already engaged to Jonathan. She tells her a little bit about him. He runs in a sane asylum, and she, Lucy says that she herself is in love with him, but it's a secret. So Lucy writes another letter to Mina. This is May 24th. She talks about how she's turning 20 in September, so Lucy's only 19. And she tells Mina that that day... She received three proposals from three different men. So the first was from Dr. John Seward. He is the insane asylum director that she wanted Mina to date. She rejected him and told him that her heart belonged to another. That part of the letter she wrote in the morning after Dr. John Seward proposed to her. She pauses the letter and begins writing again later that evening and says that a second proposal came after lunch. His name was Quincy P. Morris from Texas, and she tells him that there's somebody else she already loves, and his response is on page 73. He says, little girl, your honesty and pluck have made me a friend, and that's rarer than a lover. 
Lucy writes that she is thrilled about the third proposal she got that day, but wants to write about it when she only has happy feelings and not when she's feeling sad about having rejected the other two men. Okay, so now we switch perspectives and we get Dr. John Seward's diary entry from that day, May 25th. He writes about how he's depressed that Lucy rejected him and he decides to throw himself into his work. Okay, and then we get a letter dated May 25th that day from Quincy Morris to Arthur Holmwood. Quincy invites Arthur to celebrate with him. He wants to celebrate Arthur's engagement by going out for drinks. And Arthur sends a telegram back agreeing to meet. Arthur Holmwood is the man that Lucy said yes to. Okay, chapter six. So this is a couple months later. Mina has traveled to Whitby to visit Lucy Westenra. It's July 24th, and Whitby is in North Yorkshire, England. A lot of what's about to happen is set at Whitby Abbey in North Yorkshire, England. Mina writes on July 24th, she takes time describing the town of Whitby. She said that she met an old man, he was nearly 100, and says that he was a sailor when Waterloo was fought in 1815. She asks him to tell her some stories, but he says he has to go home to his granddaughter. She also gets ready to go home. And then she writes again on August 1st. She says she's out with Lucy, who apparently old people just adore. And she got the older man to tell her a couple of stories. So he goes on to say that all the tombstones are lies because the bodies aren't actually there. Most of them were lost at sea. And it's not like they're going to come running back on Judgment Day to take their tombstones with them. Mina points out that tombstones are more a thing to please relatives rather than to carry off on Judgment Day. They're there for family members to have something to visit. He shows her a tombstone where a man killed himself, explained that the guy who wanted to go to hell just to escape his pious mother, who was going to make it to heaven. And Lucy gets up and runs away because this makes her upset, and the old man goes after her. And Mina makes a note that she hasn't heard from Jonathan in an entire month. She writes another journal entry that same day. She says she feels alone and sad because she hasn't gotten a letter from Jonathan. Okay, so now we're switching to Dr. Seward's diary again. And (laughs) I listened to the audiobook of this, and the actor who played the voice of Dr. Seward is Alan Cumming. And he's in a ton of things, but you probably know him as the villain in Spy Kids. So (laughs) in my head, that's who Dr. Seward is. Anyway. Dr. Seward's diary, June 5th. He is getting more involved with this patient he has. He threw himself into his work the day he got rejected by Lucy, and he's been focusing a lot on this man, and his name is Renfield. He describes him as selfish, secretive, purposeful. He loves animals. He's most recently been obsessed with catching flies. He writes again on June 18th. Renfield is now obsessed with spiders. On July 1st, he writes that the flies and spiders are becoming a problem, and so he asks Renfield to get rid of them, and in response, Renfield catches a fly and eats it. On July 8th, Renfield manages to catch a sparrow and partially tame it. On July 19th, Dr. Seward says that Renfield now has a whole colony of sparrows, and he makes a request for a kitten. Dr. Seward notes on page 87, The man is an underdeveloped homicidal maniac, and he obviously refuses to get him a cat. July 20th, 
Dr. Seward says that he goes to visit Renfield in the morning. He finds him already awake setting a fly trap, and he notices that all the birds are gone, but there's feathers on the ground and a drop of blood on Renfield's pillow. But Renfield says the birds flew away. Dr. Seward leaves and tells the attendant working to keep an eye on Renfield and watch for anything suspicious. He writes again that day at 11 a.m. and says that the attendant came to him and said Renfield threw up, there were a lot of feathers, and he thinks he ate the birds raw. Another entry that day, 11 p.m., Dr. Seward drugged Renfield, took his pocketbook to read, and on 88 he says, I shall have to invent a new classification for him and call him a zoophagus maniac which means life-eating maniac, what he desires is to absorb as many lives as he can. He writes in that journal entry also that he's not angry at Lucy or Arthur. He just needs to keep working to be happy. So we switch back to Mina's journal, July 26th entry. She says that Mr. Hawkins, Jonathan's boss, came by to tell Mina that he got a letter from Jonathan saying that he was on his way home. But she knows that something isn't right. And if you remember, that is one of the letters that Dracula made Jonathan write. So she's worried about that. She's also worried because Lucy has started sleepwalking. Lucy is feeling kind of like nervous, I guess. She's waiting for Arthur to come and get her and marry her. So July 27th, Mina still hasn't heard from Jonathan. It's making her uneasy. And her and Lucy find out that Arthur's dad has taken ill and he can't come to Lucy right away. He's got to stay with his dad. And Lucy is obviously upset about this. Okay, August 3rd, still no word from Jonathan. She goes over the letter that Mr. Hawkins received from him, realizes that the letter is in his writing, but something seems off. Lucy is still sleepwalking. Mina locks the door to their bedroom to try to like keep Lucy inside because she doesn't want her to sleepwalk and get hurt. But she finds Lucy searching for a key when like sleepwalking, searching for a key. Okay, August 6th, Mina still hasn't heard anything from Jonathan. She's very anxious. Everything looks great to her. She's feeling depressed. So the old man that they have been talking to, made a friend of, is Mr. Swales. And he comes towards Mina one day. He points at something out in the distance in the ocean. And he says it feels like death. He says on page 92, there's something in the wind. It sounds and looks and tastes and smells like death. It's in the air. I feel it coming. And as he leaves Mina, the Coast Guard comes along and he tells Mina that the ship is Russian, but it's acting very strangely. Okay, chapter seven. So this is Mina's journal, but it's a newspaper article that she has glued in from August 8th. There was a huge storm. There were black masses in the sunset. There was a ship in the harbor or like far off, the one that the old man said seemed like death. And it was headed west in the middle of the storm, and they tried to signal to the ship to warn her. It grew very quiet later, and around midnight, there was a booming sound, and the storm began, and it was very powerful. The ship was still at sea, and people were very worried about it. But when it made it to the harbor, there was a corpse swinging from the helm. When it hit the shore, a dog sprang up from out of nowhere, ran off the boat, and the Coast Guard ran onto the boat. The police and the Coast Guard stopped the crowd from coming on board, and they find out that there is a man tied to the wheel. There's a crucifix and beads around his neck. There were ropes around his wrists that cut him to the bone. This man had been dead for two days, 
Mina writes again on August 9th. They found out that the ship was from Russia. Its name was Demeter. People were worried about the dog because it disappeared completely. And then later a dog was found dead and it seemed as if it had been in a fight and lost. Mina writes an entry later that day. She has found access to the logbook and it seems as if the captain went mad. Mina looks over the log of the Demeter. She said there's notes that the crew on the ship were afraid of something. One of the men reported seeing a strange man aboard, and then men started disappearing randomly. First, it was two men at a time, and it was always coincidentally during rough weather. Another man goes missing, the crew starts freaking out, and then they disappear, one, sometimes two at a time. It gets to the point where they don't have enough men to help steer the boat and change the sails, and the ship's mate writes in the log that he saw it, like a creature or person. It was terrifying. He tried to stab it, but his knife basically went through air, and the mate sees no other way out of this and throws himself overboard, and the captain is now the only one left on board. And he sees it and knows that it's going to be a fight till the end, and obviously he ends up dying. The town plans a funeral for this man. Mina writes another journal entry saying that Lucy is still sleepwalking. Mina is restless as well. She's still worried about Jonathan. And she writes on August 10th that the town holds a funeral for the captain and that the old man, Mr. Swells, her friend, was found dead with a broken neck. At that funeral, there was a dog that was terrified of something, like freaking out, but nobody knew why. Okay, chapter 8. Mina's journal entry the same day, so August 10th at 11 p.m. Both Lucy and Mina are exhausted from the funeral and lack of sleep, so they finally get to sleep August 11th at 3 a.m., so a few hours later. Mina had fallen asleep after closing her diary, and she woke up with a horrible feeling and checked on Lucy, but she wasn't in bed. So she checks the house, sees that the front door is open, and so she goes out to look for Lucy. She sees a snowy white figure sitting on a bench, like near the cemetery, and she sees a shadowy figure bending over it. On page 112, she says, From where I was, I could see a white face and red gleaming eyes. So Mina runs to the churchyard, loses sight of Lucy temporarily as she's coming up this hill, and when she sees her again, Lucy is alone. She's like gasping as Mina comes up to her. She pulls up her collar of her nightgown close around her throat. Mina shakes her until she wakes up and then they head home together. And Lucy asks Mina not to tell her mom what happened. August 11th at noon, Mina notices that the skin around Lucy's throat is pierced. And Mina thinks that she accidentally did it in her like frenzy to try to wake her up. Later that night, Mina writes again that she misses Jonathan. Lucy is asleep restfully next to her. August 12th, Lucy tried to get out of the room twice during the night, but she's in a better mood in the morning. August 13th, Lucy sits up in the middle of the night and points towards the window, and Mina sees that there's a bat flying outside in big circles. August 14th, they spend the day on the East Cliff. Lucy goes to bed early. Mina takes a walk. When she's walking, she looks up at Lucy's window and sees her leaning her head up against the window. And when she returns, she sees something like a big bird near Lucy. And she runs up the stairs and sees Lucy walking back to her bed, holding her neck. Obviously, Mina is freaked out. She has no idea what's going on. August 15th, Lucy is tired this day. She finds out that Arthur's father is doing better and he wants to get married soon. 
Lucy's mom tells Mina that she is dying and asks her not to tell Lucy because she doesn't want to worry her. August 17th, Lucy is getting weaker by the day. The whole house seems to be under a dark spell. And in the middle of the night, Lucy sleepwalks and leans out the window. She's like gasping for breath. And Mina notices that the punctures on her throat are not healing. They're just getting worse. So now we get a letter from a solicitor in Whitby ordering boxes of earth from Demeter to be delivered to the estate that Dracula purchased. This is August 17th. They request to have the keys to the property. They answer on August 21st saying that the keys are in the place and gave them a small refund. August 18th, Mina writes in her journal again. She says Lucy's doing better but is still very pale. And Lucy starts telling her about the night when Mina found her on the bench. So she says she heard a lot of dogs howling and she felt like her soul left her body and she was sinking. And she said she saw Mina shaking her before she felt it. August 19th, Mina gets word of Jonathan. She finds out that he is ill and in a hospital in Hungary. She plans to go out there so she can nurse him back to health. And the letter she received was written by a woman named Sister Agatha. And it was dated August 12th. She finds out that Jonathan has been with them in the hospital for six weeks with what they call violent brain fever. Jonathan came to them by train from Klausenberg, and he's been healing ever since. Now we get Dr. Seward's diary, August 19th. He says that Renfield is still acting strangely. The attendant thinks he's having some kind of religious frenzy. On 123, Renfield says, if so, we must look out for squalls, for a strong man with homicidal and religious mania might be dangerous. Dr. Seward worries that Renfield will think of himself as God, and he likens his behavior to all madmen. Renfield keeps getting more and more excited about something. He even says he doesn't care about spiders anymore. And one night, in the middle of the night, Renfield escapes. The doctor that was on duty chases him to the chapel. On 126, it says that Renfield started speaking. He said, I'm here to do your bidding, master. I am your slave, and you will reward me, for I shall be faithful. And then the men catch up to him, put him in a straitjacket, lock him up, and take him back to the insane asylum. Chapter 9. Mina traveled to see Jonathan, and this is a letter from Mina to Lucy on August 24th. She says that she got to Jonathan at the hospital and he's a wreck. She expresses that she had been worried that he was off with another girl, but obviously that's not the case. She talks to sister Agatha and finds out some more information about how long he's been there and what his symptoms are. And she talks to Jonathan, who gives her his notebook, the journal that he was writing in the entire time he was with the Count. And he tells her that she can read it, but asks her, not to remind him of what happened to him, but he's like, you can read it if you want, but please don't talk to me about it. And they get married in the hospital. She seals the notebook as like a gift to him to show him that she trusts him. And she's just very happy to be his wife. Lucy answers Mina's letter on August 30th, says that she is getting married to Arthur on September 28th. And is very excited. Dr. Seward writes in his journal August 20th and says that Renfield has been violent during the day but quiet from sunset to sunrise and they don't know why. On August 23rd, he says that Renfield has calmed down enough to loosen his bonds every day 
But later that day, he writes again that Renfield escaped his room. They found him near the chapel again, and he tries to kill Dr. Seward. But Renfield grows calmer when he starts observing a bat. And if you haven't figured it out yet, Renfield is obviously under the control of Count Dracula in some way, as is Lucy Westenra. So, diary entry from Lucy, August 24th. She thinks she's been having bad dreams because she's exhausted, but she doesn't remember them. August 25th, she writes that she woke up in the middle of the night to scratching at the window, has more bad dreams, is feeling very weak. Arthur is there with her, and he writes a letter to Dr. Seward on August 31st and tells him that Lucy is very sick and getting sicker every day and asks Dr. Seward to come and take a look at her. Arthur has to go back to see his father, who is getting worse. So on September 1st, he goes, and Dr. Seward writes to Arthur on September 2nd, telling him that he came to see Lucy. He found nothing obviously wrong with her, but is obviously concerned about how she looks. He thinks that she's suffering from anemia, which is when you don't have enough healthy red blood cells and you become like tired and weak. He thinks that her problem also might be mental as opposed to physical. And so he writes to his friend, Professor Van Helsing, to come and have a look at Lucy. Abraham Van Helsing writes back to Dr. Seward on September 2nd and says that he'll come and take a look at her. Okay, so on September 3rd, Van Helsing comes to see Lucy, and Dr. Seward writes a letter to Arthur about what he said. So Van Helsing says that the matter with Lucy is life and death, and he sent Dr. Seward out so that he could talk to Lucy privately. He doesn't think that she's anemic, but she has lost a lot of blood. He has to leave, but he requests that Dr. Seward sends him a telegram every day telling him how she's doing, and he promises he'll come back if he needs to. September 4th, Dr. Seward's diary. He says that Renfield had another violent episode. His screams are very disturbing. And later that day, he writes again saying that Renfield is catching flies again and eating them. He asks for his notebook back. He apologizes to Dr. Seward for trying to kill him. He keeps saying how he feels like he has been abandoned. Again, at midnight that night, Dr. Seward writes that Renfield was yelling. And as the sun set, he became less frenzied, like he calmed down at sunset again. On 142, Dr. Seward said, It is wonderful, however, what intellectual recuperative power lunatics have. For within a few minutes, he stood up quite calmly and looked around him. Like he he was frenzied and then absolutely calm within a few minutes. And he emptied his fly box, threw it out the window, says he was sick of it, and just has very strange behavior. So then we get two telegrams from Dr. Seward to Van Helsing, the first two, say that Lucy is doing better, and a third telegram dated September 6th says that she is doing worse and he must come at once. Okay, chapter 10. This is a letter from Dr. Seward to Arthur Holmwood, September 6th. Dr. Seward tells Arthur that Lucy is doing worse and that Van Helsing is coming back to take over treating her. Dr. Seward writes in his journal September 7th, He says that Van Helsing arrived and told Dr. Seward not to say anything to anyone about Lucy's condition or about what he hears, and he counsels him on how to take record of everything. He says that nothing is too small and just tells him to record everything, doubts, surmises, observations, everything that happens, just to keep a record of everything. So Dr. Seward meets with Lucy's mom and convinces her mom not to see Lucy 
during this time. He's worried that if she sees her, her mom will die. Like she's, it will frighten her so much that she'll die and her health is already very poor. Lucy is doing much worse. She's having a hard time breathing and they decide to give her a blood transfusion because if they don't, she's definitely going to die. So Arthur comes over and they decide that he's the one that should give her the transfusion since he's her fiance and he's young and in good health. Lucy grows a lot stronger, but Arthur does lose a decent amount of blood. And as they're doing the transfusion, Van Helsing pulls back this velvet band on Lucy's neck and sees the red marks on her neck. They aren't sure what to make of the marks, but Van Helsing is like, I'm going to go to Amsterdam and figure it out. And he says he'll be back in a couple of days. He tells Dr. Seward to stay up with Lucy and not fall asleep the entire night. He needs to keep watch over her. So Dr. Seward on September 8th says in his journal that he stayed up with Lucy all night. She was afraid to fall asleep, but she did and nothing happened because he stayed up with her all night. Van Helsing writes to say he's on his way back. The next day, September 9th, Dr. Seward says he's exhausted from sitting up with Lucy all night, so he goes and takes a nap in the next room. The same day Lucy writes in her journal, she says she's happier than she's been in a while. She misses Arthur, but she's feeling better. Dr. Seward writes in his journal the next day saying that Van Helsing came back and they found Lucy in a state worse than ever. She's alive, but barely. And so they have no choice but to have Dr. Seward give her a blood transfusion right away. And on 154, Dr. Seward says, No man knows till he experiences it what it is to feel his own lifeblood drawn away into the veins of the woman he loves. After they finish the blood transfusion, Van Helsing tells Dr. Seward not to tell anyone about the incident. He's weak from the transfusion, but Lucy wakes up and she's feeling much better and she doesn't remember what happened. And Van Helsing takes over, like, the watch for her that night so that Dr. Seward can rest. Two nurses came in at one point saying that they would stay up and watch Lucy, but Van Helsing declines. And September 11th, a big package comes for Professor Van Helsing. It's filled with flowers, their lotus flowers, which is essentially garlic. So he gives them to Lucy. She protests at first, saying that they're just common garlic, but he makes a wreath around her neck, puts them all around her window, and literally just everywhere in her room and in her house and doorways everywhere. And when Van Helsing is doing this, Dr. Seward feels like he's trying to ward off a dark spirit, and that really freaks him out. And Van Helsing tells Lucy to wear the wreath around her neck and not to open doors or windows for anyone. And they leave, and Dr. Seward is, like, terrified because he's afraid that leaving her alone will end badly. Chapter 11. Lucy's diary entry, September 12th. She says that she likes Van Helsing. She feels comforted by the flowers and the garlic, but that she still fears sleep. And she promises that she will ignore the flapping by her windows tonight. Diary entry from Dr. Seward, September 13th. Van Helsing and Seward come to Lucy's house and they meet with her mom outside, who tells them that in the middle of the night, she went into Lucy's room 
and she felt like the room was stuffy and smelled like garlic, so she took all the flowers from the room and opened the window in order to make it more pleasant. Van Helsing doesn't say anything when the mom is in the room, but when she leaves, he breaks down crying. They run to Lucy's room and find her extremely pale and waxen. Van Helsing is not surprised, and they can't lose any time. Dr. Seward is still weak from giving the blood transfusion, and so Van Helsing gives her his own blood this time. Van Helsing then tells the mom later not to remove anything from Lucy's room, and he's like, I'm going to keep watch. Lucy writes in her diary September 12th. She says she has had four days of peace and is regaining her strength. She gets a box full of garlic every day, and she isn't afraid to sleep anymore. Even though she hears flapping at her window angrily, she just ignores it. So then we get a newspaper article from the Pall Mall Gazette, September 18th, and it's titled, The Escaped Wolf Perilous Adventure of Our Interviewer. So a journalist, Thomas Bidler, interviews the keeper of the wolf department at this zoological garden place, basically like a zoo. He asks him questions about the escaped wolf. So the zookeeper says that the wolf's name is Bursiker, and it's a wolf from Norway, and he's usually very well behaved. And the zookeeper was feeding different animals when he heard howling, and he went to the wolf area and saw a tall man with a beard and red eyes. He has a conversation with the man from far away. The zookeeper feels really uncomfortable about it, and the man touches the wolf and says he has several wolf friends. Anyway, it's a very weird exchange. So later when the moon comes out, the wolves start howling, and the zookeeper goes to check on them, but doesn't see anything. And then he notices that Bursiker's cage is empty. The rails were broken and twisted like they had been pulled apart so that the wolf could get out. And the zookeeper says like he must have just really wanted to escape and he's probably hiding nearby. After that, the zookeeper notices a wolf near his window and opens the door for him. He comes inside, puts him in a cage, gives him food. So just a really weird experience, newspaper article. So journal entry from Dr. Seward, September 17th. Dr. Seward is attending his accounts when Renfield bursts into his office with a knife, cuts him, begins, like, licking up the blood off the floor, Seward's blood, and kept saying over and over, the blood is life, the blood is life. And then they get him under control and put Renfield back in his room. Seward is obviously exhausted, and he can't sleep that night. And he gets a telegram from Van Helsing on September 17th. He tells Dr. Seward to be at Lucy's house and make sure that the flowers are in place. Dr. Seward writes in his journal the next day, September 18th. He isn't thrilled by the telegram he got, but gets on a train to London anyway. Then we get a memorandum left by Lucy Westenrest September 17th that night. She believes she is dying of weakness. She says she placed the flowers as she was told, fell asleep, woke up to flapping at the window. She was afraid to fall asleep again, so she forced herself awake. She heard a dog howling outside but all she could see was the bat outside of her window. And her mom hears it, so she comes in the room, sees that Lucy's awake, sits down by her. And Lucy asks her mom to stay and sleep in her room that night. As they lay there, the flapping at the window started again. Lucy's mom is frightened by this. They hear a crash at the window and a lot of broken glass. And in the window is the head of a gray wolf. Lucy's mom is terrified. She reached for anything she could. She was just like, having a panic attack and grabbed the wreath of flowers around Lucy's neck, tore them away. She had like a strange gurgling in her throat. Basically, she dies of a heart attack in Lucy's bed. And as she fell, she hits Lucy in the forehead. 
Lucy realizes that her mother has just died. Lucy herself loses consciousness, gains it again. She hears a bunch of dogs howling. The nurses wake up. They go to Lucy's room, terrified to find Lucy's mother dead. They cover her in a sheet and go out into the dining room. Lucy places flowers on her mom, and she's confident that the nurses are going to come back and sit up with her that night. But when Lucy goes to the dining room to find them, all four nurses are on the floor, breathing heavily like they've been knocked out. And Lucy found a bottle of wine that has been drugged so that they all passed out. So Lucy is utterly alone. She knows somebody drugged her servants, but she doesn't want to leave the house. So she writes this paper, hides it in the breast of her dress. She's assuming she's going to die tonight. So she hides this in her chest, hoping that the people who find her will find this note. And she says her goodbyes to her fiance, Arthur, in this journal entry. Okay, that is the end of this episode. Be sure to listen to episode two where I cover the rest of the chapters and go over themes. Go follow Brief on Instagram and TikTok so that you can know when new books come out. Also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, give me a review.